electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. The debt ceiling showdown. One meeting at the White House, one small step in D.C. What do they do? Sit in a room for hours and say yes, no, yes, no. Senator Ted Cruz on the negotiations progress. Right now it's a game of chicken, and the question is who's going to swerve? And PIMCO's head of public policy, Libby Cantrell, on the sky-high stakes. You know, I mean, people have used catastrophic. That might seem hyperbolic, but we think it could be. That big story plus the fake photo that shook the Internet. The tweets, the check marks, and the market impact. For eight bucks, you too can try and defraud anybody you want. It's Tuesday, May 23rd. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Melissa Lee. Joe and Andrew are off today, so the girls are running the show. Of course, everybody's waiting to see what happens with this potential deal to avoid a debt default. If you're looking at the Treasury yields, you're going to see right now that uh, the spread between the two-year and the 10-year Treasury notes, though, has been inverted since July of last year. That's more than 220 consecutive trading days, making that the longest street for an inverted yield curve since 1980. This is usually a signal of a recession. Obviously, this one's been flashing for a very long, long time. time, but broken clock, I guess, is always right at some like point. Waiting for Godot recession here. Exactly. Waiting, 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 it doesn't seem to come. Yeah. More meetings, more optimism, but still no deal as the nation heads towards that June 1st deadline to raise the debt ceiling or face trouble paying its bills. Kayla Tausche joins us right now with the latest on this, and Kayla, um, It sounded a little better yesterday, but this seems to ebb and flow. Yeah, and it it flowed again last night, Becky, and at least the conversation lines are open. Negotiators on behalf of Biden and McCarthy met again late last night, beginning at around 9 p.m. to try to build on that positive momentum established by the president and the House Speaker earlier in the evening, who, despite reaching no deal, both said that meeting was productive. We still have some disagreements, but I think we may be able to get where we have to go. We both know. Now, President Biden said there are still areas of disagreement, but that the two reiterated once again that default is off the table and the only way to move forward is in good faith toward a bipartisan agreement. McCarthy, speaking to reporters after the meeting, said that there is room to keep talking. We're not, we're not saying, oh, let's bring something new into discussion. Let's not talk about raising taxes. That's been off for a long time. We literally talked about where we are having disagreements and ideas. So to me, that's productive. Not progress, but productive. The two sides are arriving at some common ground, sources tell CNBC and NBC News, namely unlocking up to $60 billion in unspent COVID aid. That had always been sort of low-hanging fruit but also now reducing payments to insurers, physicians, and drug companies under Medicare. The White House estimates that, for one, negotiating more drug prices under Medicare alone could save up to $200 billion over 10 years. 
So it's not the $4.5 trillion that the GOP has been seeking with its basis point for starting negotiations. But, Becky, it's a start. It's the middle of the Venn diagram. And the goal of negotiators is to try to widen it out a little bit to get a deal or at least get closer to a deal before that June 1st deadline. Kayla, we're waiting for the photo op later today when you actually have McCarthy and Biden uh, discussing things sitting in the room. But I, I have to imagine the negotiation is taking place constantly between the staffs. They are. And negotiations took place at 9 p.m. last night. I mean, after the meeting broke up between the two principals, they said our staff is going to be getting back in the room together in just a matter of hours to try to follow on to what they discussed. I mean, there's a lot of rubber that's meeting the road behind the scenes, hours that are being logged by the deputies that are negotiating on behalf of the president and the speaker. The challenge is that ideologically they're coming from much different places and finding that common ground is, is going to be very difficult until there is real urgency. Now, the GOP criticized the White House yesterday and said that they didn't feel that the White House approached yesterday's meeting with urgency. Perhaps what we can read into that is they didn't believe that the White House is willing to compromise on any of its points. Uh, but certainly the reason why that we see these deals come together in the 11th hour is because, you know, neither side feels willing to blink and cave to that political pressure until they're right up against the clock on this. Right. What do they do? Sit in a room for hours and say, yes, no, yes, no. Or do they have to come up with something that isn't even on the table, nobody's thought of, to say, here's a creative way that everybody can get a little something? Well, one of the criticisms from the White House was that on Friday, right before those talks um, pressed pause and Republicans left the room, was that they re-entered the conversations that day with a bunch of new line items to bring to the table um, that were policy items that had been supported by the House Freedom Caucus, which, of course, is the Republican base, um, the the highly conservative Republican base in the Republican House, and that the White House said, you know that those are non-starters for us. There's no sense in sitting down here and talking about those because they won't pass the Senate and they won't get Democratic votes on board. So that was why things pressed pause. So there has been some frustration behind the scenes, according to my sources, that, you know, there have been situations where new items have been brought into the discussion that simply just won't work for both sides. So even hearing Speaker McCarthy last night say, you know, we're not adding anything new to the conversation. We're just talking about, you know, these known entities, these known issues that we've been discussing for some time. You know, that at least to me seems like there's progress. Kayla, thank you. For more on the debt ceiling negotiations and the impact on markets, we want to bring in Libby Cantrell, who is head of U.S. public policy at PIMCO. And, and Libby, what do you think? <laughs> You're watching this in Washington, kind of yeah. wondering what's happening. How do you handicap this? Do you tell people that you think a debt default might actually happen this time? Or do you think this is a replay of we're going to yeah. get a deal? Well, it's a, yeah, it's definitely it's clear as mud, productive, but not <laughs> not 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 progress necessarily. I mean, I mean, so this is the number one issue for our clients. I mean, we're all hearing this from our clients. Um, yeah, we've been constructive in terms of folks actually reaching a deal before the X date. We just think that um, while Kayla's absolutely right, there's no political incentive to compromise before you absolutely have to. Uh, there's also no political incentive to default. Nobody, it's in no one's interest uh, to see us breach uh, the X date. So we remain constructive. We think there's the contours of the deal exist. It's just a question of filling in the details. And the details are sort of mind-numbing, I think, for kind of the markets. It's what baseline they're going to be using, the depth of these spending caps, how you do, how much do you slow uh, future growth. They're actually important from an economic perspective. Um, but I, we think we're, you know, we remain confident that they'll be able to get there and, and be able to get there before the X date. Now, there's also the possibility that they have a short-term deal 
we're just a short-term extension for the next two weeks because, of course, the Senate's on recess right now and the House is supposed to be in recess next week. Um, but we remain constructive. But we, ha we have to start you know, seeing these details be filled in because we do think the market's going to start reacting if, if, uh, if they don't. Yeah, McCarthy, I think, is of the opinion that he is not bringing something to the floor that he can't pass with a majority of his caucus signing off on it, somewhere from half to two thirds, maybe signing off on that. Right. How tricky is that? Is that's, I mean, that seems like it's going to be the hard nut is getting something the White House would agree to that also half to two thirds of the Republican caucus would agree to. Right, and then presumably you have to get Democrats on board as well in the House. Right, right. Well, so you, you, you probably don't need that many of them. You don't need that you many, but you still need help. some, right? right? So you need to provide cover to the Democrats, you need to provide cover to those moderate Republicans to vote for it, and then of course you need to provide uh, cover to the, to the White House. And this is why I think it's actually helpful that they're saying we're narrowing the, the scope of the negotiations, we're not going to be talking about immigration reform or tax increases, because those are both non-starters for each of the respective caucuses. So this is sort of, you know, they're going to be kind of threading the needle here, if you will. Um, we remain confident that they're going to be able to do it. And we think once there is a deal in principle, that folks will fall in line. Everyone understands that this is something that they just can't, this is kind of the, the stove that they realize is hot and they don't want to touch. Uh, so I think they're, they all realize that they need to get this done. So what's the actionable advice here? I mean, if, if, if it's the top question you're getting from yeah. people, it doesn't seem like it's had a huge impact on the equity markets to this point. Not the equity markets. Now, of course, as you pointed out, the, tr the bills market has very much been dis dislocated, right? So you saw the auction yesterday at 545. Uh, on, the, on, the, on the three month. Um, so we are sort of seeing some dislocation again, the front end of the yield curve, but broadly speaking, the equity market has been you know, pretty sanguine, I think pretty constructive that they will reach a deal. Um, I would say that if we don't see something in principle by in the next say 48 hours, People should, <laughs> people should also then just assume that there's going to be a short-term deal. And so that means that this sort of uncertainty will at least last for the An next few weeks. An extension a week or two. An extension for, yeah, a week or two, maybe a month. But we, probably, we think it's probably more weeks, not months. Um, so I think if you don't see a deal in principle in the next, say, 48, 72 hours, then we might, likely, we might see a, see a short-term increase. And I think you probably Is that would a see reason so. to sell the market? You know, or again, if you I think, think it's that ultimately a deal. Do you just ignore all? Well, and I, you know, we're you know we're, we have the benefit of being long-term investors, so we we are doing some, something tactically, but for the most part, there's nothing, no big strategic shifts in our portfolio. Would you buy us. if you did see a sell-off? Uh, well, you know, I think we have concerns about just the slowing economy and sort of some of the fundamentals, um, you know, going into the sort of the second half of this year. So from our perspective, I'm not sure it would be, it would necessarily be a buy, but again, we're not necessarily shifting any sort of portfolios as it, as it is right now either. Is there anywhere in your scenario where the U.S. gets downgraded, even if we don't hit that X date? Because we could get downgraded. Fitch has said that we could downgrade the yep. U.S. because of you know dysfunction in the government, which yep. we see in spades, <laughs> really. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, you know, what we saw, of course, in 2011 was that there was a downgrade and that did, um, you know, spur this partly the sell off. There was right. also the European debt crisis and there was also big budget cuts. So I think people were worried about the recession. However, in 2013, when we also didn't see a deal until the day before the exit, I don't think people remember that we had 2011 and then we also had a 2013 episode. 2013 episodes sort of have been a repeat of this where there's just been these sort of languishing uh, negotiations and what have you. But there was no downgrade. Moody's, I, think, I believe, has come out say that they're not necessarily going to downgrade in advance of the X date, but of course, if we do breach it, then um, everything's on the table. And I do think, you know, I mean, we, we don't mean to be sanguine about sort of the implications of a breach. We think that it would be, um, you know, I mean, people have used catastrophic. That might seem hyperbolic, but it, it, we, you know, we think it could be. Yeah. Thanks, Libby. Thanks. Appreciate it. Good to see you. 
JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon reiterating a warning about commercial real estate loans. Speaking yesterday at his bank's investor conference, Dimon said commercial real estate is the area most likely to cause problems for lenders. He said it'll happen in certain locations, certain office properties, certain construction loans, but could be very isolated and won't affect every bank. Dimon also warning that banks, especially smaller ones, need to plan for interest rates to rise far higher than most expect up to six or seven percent. Did you hear some of the stuff he was talking about too, just that quantitative tightening? He said he was more afraid than anybody in the room about quantitative tightening because we've never had quantitative easing before. Right. We've never dealt with quantitative tightening, tightening before. So you don't really know how this is going to play out. And I think that's a pretty good word of caution from somebody who understands the market so well. Yeah, and you have to wonder also, I mean, is part of this just, you know, part of this is, is risk management on the part of this bank, and so do you just plan for a worst-case scenario, or is this scenario the, the scenario that they actually believe in? They also said they're reserving on the assumption that unemployment would peak at 5.8% in 2024. That's which is a big is jump, from, big jump from which would be a lot of pain. So is that just playing it conservative um, in order for the banks to manage their risk, or is that the assumption that they actually see happening? St. Louis Fed President Bullard mm -hmm. made some comments yesterday, too. He was just talking about how he would like to see probably two more rate hikes at some point during the rest of this year. His point was that front-end loading it would be better because you'd yeah. rather try and counter inflation when you still have a strong job mm -hmm. market. So right. that argument makes sense. I get it. The question becomes, how much do you damage the job market by doing these things? But you're right. If, if, you, if you think inflation is going to be persistent, even as the job market weakens, it's a, a fair call to say something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because can you imagine if you're dealing with inflation and you have problems in the unemployment? I mean, then you're talking about stagflation. Exactly. And that's a much worse scenario right. by all, all measures. Uh, meantime, he's also addressing Diamond, that is, the departure of his counterpart of Morgan Stanley, who just announced he will leave in the next 12 months. Diamond said he is still invigorated has no plans to quit anytime soon. He says he knows he can't do the job forever, but he'll stay while his intensity is the same. Morgan Stanley's James Gorman said Friday he plans to step down as CEO within the next year and assume the role of the executive chairman. I like this phrase that he used, no CEO should retire in place. Right. Which is... No quiet quit. Yeah. Exactly. Right, right. <laughs> Especially in the CEO ranks, yeah. I also like, they were kind of needling him about it, trying to get him to comment on how long he was going to be around. Remember, he's only 67. Yeah. They were needling him about it, he, he, uh, you know, as a joke, said, oh, three and a half years, which is how long is left on the stock plan that mm -hmm. they had granted him, the five-year stock right. plan. That was a pretty hefty stock plan. Too. Yeah. But you do have to wonder if it's going to be around three and a half years. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But like I said, he's only 67. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod. You know, the Senate, I think the median age is about 142. Senator Ted Cruz joins us on set next. I think the decision making in the White House is being done by a bunch of 20 something and 30 something little Marxists who don't have an appreciation for reality. <laughs> oh, I told you I didn't want to dig into this. We're going to get stuck digging into this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to CNBC's Squawk Pod, today with Becky Quick and Melissa Lee. This is Becky's mic, straight up on Becky. Here's Becky. President Biden's meeting with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on Monday didn't yield a deal on a debt ceiling just yet, but both sides said that the talks were productive. And Speaker McCarthy pledged to speak with the president daily until a deal is done. For more on this, we want to bring in Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. He is the ranking member of the Commerce Committee and a member of the Foreign Relations and Joint Economic Committees. And Senator, thanks for being here on set. Good morning, Becky. Good to be with you. All right, we were just talking off camera, and I told you I'm so sick of the debt ceiling talks. <laughs> Nobody really knows what's going to happen except for Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden. Maybe they can work out something great. I will ask you, because we have to, do you think something happens? Do you think a deal gets done? Look, I hope so, and I think it probably does. Uh, right now, it's a game of chicken, and the question is, who's, who's going to swerve? Uh, I think the House passed a good bill. I'm glad House Republicans actually stepped forward and led. This was now several weeks ago. They passed a bill that raised the debt ceiling but also that takes real steps to rein in the out-of-control spending. What has happened on the spending and debt side is crushing. It is unprecedented. And, and I think the House bill has reasonable and modest steps. It's designed to cut $4.8 over 10 years. And, and I think it's a very reasonable piece of legislation. Obviously, the White House is not going to agree to it exactly. Right. Uh, but I think it lays out a good roadmap of where they should go. The question is... You know, Joe Biden started off with a position he wouldn't talk at all, he wouldn't compromise, he was unwilling to consider anything. That was obviously unreasonable. And, and he had to fold from that because it, it, that didn't withstand scrutiny. Where we are now, I don't know if the White House is willing to be reasonable. I, I, I'll tell you what I've encouraged President Joe Biden to do, which is listen to Vice President Joe Biden. In 2011, the last big debt ceiling showdown we had, where Republicans held a line and said, we need to rein in spending. It was Vice President Joe Biden who negotiated what was called the Budget Control Act, designed to cut $2.3 trillion in spending. And he sat down with, with Mitch McConnell and, and, and with, with the House Speaker, and they negotiated that deal. I hope Joe Biden as president has at least some modicum of the same willingness to do that. I'm worried that he doesn't have the ability to do it anymore. And, no, and, I think, and Look, I, I will say, honestly, this is going to be a negotiation that plays out. Kevin McCarthy definitely has a stronger hand because he passed the bill in the House. That gives him a stronger negotiating power. He is not going to take something to the floor that he can't get at least a majority of his caucus to yeah, sign off on. Yeah. So hopefully the two of them can work some sort of a deal out. Um, look, I, I think we both agree that it's not a good scenario in any way, shape, or form if we default on our debt. We should absolutely not default on the debt. And, and I will tell you, I'm, I am more worried now that we might default than I ever have been. Really? And the reason is I don't think Biden is, is up to the task. I don't think he's engaged in the negotiations personally and directly. Even I think they're talking and sitting and meeting every day. Yeah, I, I th his, it, may be, it may be later than, than we want. His to mental it. capacities are markedly diminished from, oh, no. from even a few years uh, ago. Senator, and, don't make me go through this. And, and what 
what makes me worry is, is that I think the decision making in the White House is being done by a bunch of 20 something and 30 something little Marxists who Look, don't have an appreciation <laughs> for reality. Oh, I told you I didn't want to dig into this. We're going to get stuck digging into this. I, I mean, you I, can I will say, say the this. same argument. There, there have been people who questioned the last president's ability to be able to have rational conversations and do these things. There sure. were people who were talking about having him removed with the 25th Amendment. But look, he's in the room, he's making the talks. Hopefully so, we get so something I, out So I can this. tell you the reality. All right, when the Senate is in session, every Republican senator, we have lunch together. We sit around and talk about how virtually none of us have spoken to the president even once. He doesn't talk to Republican senators, and that's weird. We all know Joe. I was sworn into office by Vice President Joe Biden. He was a man of the Senate. This White House hides him, and, and it's unfortunate. Did McConnell just meet with him? I, McConnell had met with him briefly, but it is. I used to talk to Trump every week, sometimes every day. I spoke with He's Obama. I spoke yeah. with Obama regularly. It is weird. Lindsey Graham has flown all over the world with Joe Biden for 20 years. Lindsey hadn't talked with I, Joe. They keep him hidden. That, that's I, not disputed. Like nobody, nobody denies that they keep him media. hidden. He's from, not doing media. He doesn't do like media. He, to, he doesn't he did do. Just sit down with McConnell. And McCarthy he, he, is talking to him every day. He also he, just went to the G7. It's okay. not like this guy is hiding. Wait, hold on a second. Not, I don't want to be in the. I don't like, want to be in the corner of, of he, defending anybody. He's intellectually anybody, acute and on, 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 on things. Great. If he is then he ought to do what he did in 2011. I, I don't think he okay. is, and I'm so, worried because I think the young extreme staffers in the White House have no appreciation for just how damaging a default would be, and so I think they are quite willing you think they to, go to force the a default because they think the media will blame it on Republicans, but, but and, and my, I think that would be wildly irresponsible. The, the, the talking points I hear all the time is that this would be much worse for the president to go into a default because he's the president who would get blamed in the next election cycle, which is why Donald Trump is urging anyone in the House to say no, don't do this, so vote against I, I don't think that's what the White House believes. I think the White House believes whatever happens, the media will blame it on Republicans. Whether that's true or not, I think that's what the White House believes. And, and one thing to be clear, Joe Biden today could take the chances of a default to zero. Here's what I think a responsible president would say. He would stand up and say, under no circumstances will we ever, ever, ever default on the debt, no matter what. The United States honors our commitments. Now, how could he do that? He could do that by claiming the 14th Amendment and well, saying it, he's going to pay on it, the it, And it, I know you disagree with that. that would that, be patently unconstitutional. But, but he could do it in a very simple way that is clearly legal, which is that every month, federal tax revenues coming into the federal government significantly exceed interest on the debt. And he could say, we're going to pay interest on the debt. We're not going to default. We're not going to pay everything else. Uh, right. That's what's called prioritization. Right. He could do and, that. And, and they, they very, very well may get to that situation at the beginning of this They may well. get to that situation, but the reason that he hasn't said that, which he could say, he could take the chances of default to zero. The reason he hasn't is, is I think, the, the so, White House is trying to scaremonger on this. They're trying to threaten default. Well, not paying the rest of our bills would not be great either. Well, but, but let's Do you stop be, paying the veterans? Do you stop paying the Defense Department? Do you stop paying the salaries of people in Congress? Okay, okay not paying the salaries of people in Congress would, would actually be a pretty good step. So, so, so that, that <laughs> actually actually the, Those should be the first bills they yeah. don't pay, actually. <laughs> and, and to be clear, everyone agrees that the debt ceiling needs to be raised. But if you look historically... It has been the only leverage that has been effective in reining in out-of-control spending. Look, it's a negotiating tool. I get it. And, it, and it's the only thing that works. And, and to, you know, given Squawk Bucks get, gets into the numbers, I think it's worth pausing for a second and reflecting at how different this is from the past. So 2017, total federal spending was about $4 trillion. 
Total federal tax revenue was about $3.3 trillion. Now, quick math, that means we had about a $700 billion deficit. That was 2017. Fast forward to today. Total spending has gone from $4 trillion up to $6.5 trillion, $6.4 trillion. Tax revenues have exploded. Tax revenues have gone from $3.3 trillion to $4.8 trillion. Now, quick pause to note, when we signed the 2017 tax cuts that I fought very hard to pass, every Democrat went on TV and said this is going to slash federal revenues and blow up the deficit. Turns out they were entirely wrong on that. Every year, federal tax revenues have gone up, and they've gone up from $3.3 trillion to $4.8 trillion. The problem isn't tax revenues. The problem is we had a spending binge from the Democrats that has caused the national debt to go from $20, billion to $20 trillion rather, to $32 trillion we in did four pass, years. We did pass an infrastructure bill, a CHIPS bill, the ridiculously named Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, look, I voted against those bills. Those were mistakes. You voted against the infrastructure bill, too? Yes. Okay, so there are people who, who would say even once we get through that, you've got to cut the spending back because those are long-term projects that maybe even if they were in need of spending... And, and, and by the way, if the infrastructure bill had focused on actual roads and bridges and infrastructure that I, we need, I would have happily voted for it. The problem was it was filled with, with all sorts of goodies for special interests that had nothing to do with real infrastructure. So you said it. Squawk Box is all about the numbers. Yeah. So is CNBC. So the S&P 500 is at 4,200. There seems to be a firm belief in the markets that a deal will be reached. It yeah. sounds like you, you're saying to market participants, brace yourself because we could actually go to default. That's a scenario that we are not pricing into the markets I, look, right now. I, I agree. And listen, I think a deal will be reached. I you think do. at the okay. end of so the day. So even though you're saying Joe Biden is not going to be the vice president of 2011, you think a deal is going to be reached? I, I think a deal will be reached, but I worry that the chances of a default are greater than they ever have been. I, th I worry that this White House is reckless enough to force a default. I, I don't think that'll happen. I think that's less likely than not. But the odds are higher than, than, than we should be happy with. Let's switch to technology. We were just having a... a well, the, the discussion about what happened yesterday, the fake picture of the Pentagon being bombed. What, what else can you imagine under this scenario? How do you stop it? How do you make sure that this is not going to be something that we have to be worried about every day? Oh, look, it's, it's a brave new world we're in. And, and, and it is frightening between technology, the technology of deep fakes, between where AI is going, um, it's just going to be a very dangerous environment for the foreseeable future. And we're going to have to have real skepticism to almost anything you see to make sure it is real and accurate. It's not going to be that hard to suddenly have video of some politician saying something they never said uh, or somebody, you know, people doing things that never happened. And, and so it's going to be incumbent on, it's actually why I'm a big believer in, in free speech, that if you have lots of people engaged, uh, you can have real-time fact-checking. You, you remember one of the first big instances of this was Dan Rather back in, I guess it was 2004, where he had 60 Minutes, this big, big expose on George W. Bush sure. with these documents. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you know, it's one of the first instances of, I guess it was a bunch of you know, bloggers in their pajamas who noticed the documents that he claimed to have appeared to be fraudulent, and it ended up within a couple of days revealing that they were fake and fraudulent documents. That was one of the first real illustrations to me of the power 
of the community of folks online being able to point to facts and correct them. And, and with new technology, we're going to need to do that. It's easier to do that when you have a limited number of news sources and a bunch of people fact-checking them, when everybody is a news service, which is essentially what you have on a lot of these social media apps. You know, that, that becomes... It's how something can get faked and spread instantaneously, and before you have the time to fact check it, you know, stock drops significantly. Yeah, yeah. There's questions about security, something along those lines. And 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 I'd say yes and no. Um, I worry about what has happened to much of the media. Um, there, there's a reason I like coming on Squawk Box because because y'all actually talk about substance and. You get into it, and, and you guys are much, much less partisan than most of the other media outlets out there. Um, one of the really unfortunate consequences, I think, of the age of Trump is that much of the media, Trump broke the media. That, that stations like CNN, MSNBC, they hate Trump so much that they've stopped practicing journalism. And, and I don't think that's good for America when when people who are supposed to be journalists view their role as advocates pushing a point of view, particularly in that context, I think it's important to have lots and lots of people where everyone can be a publisher so, and can press so back. So the media is broken, but back to the question, yeah. is there anything Congress can do about AI? Because misinformation can spread and it's like shouting fire in a crowded movie theater. And, and in this case, it could be billions of dollars in market cap shaved off the stock market, a single stock. Um, so many different ramifications here. Well, it's, it's not like Congress is going to be able to wave a magic wand and sure. make AI go away. Um, it's not like Congress is going to be able to stop uh, criminal activity and make suddenly criminals go away either. No, but you signed Look, off on an amicus brief against Section 230, and I think that's a good start. It, old, old absolutely. Liable. Yeah, look, se Section 230 was passed at a time when the Internet barely existed. And it was designed to protect a nascent industry and to enable it to grow. We now have big tech is, are these math, massive behemoths, the largest companies in the world. And the power they exercise, the monopoly control they exercise, and in particular 230, when it was passed, Congress assumed that big tech would be a neutral public square. In other words, it wouldn't be putting its thumb on the scale. It wouldn't be silencing some voices and not others but it would let everyone speak. And, and the reasoning was, it's not fair to sue Facebook because of a comment you make or I make, because if you make it or I make it, it's not Facebook's fault. Now, now that's true if they're an open public square for everyone. What's happened is that big tech in recent years has decided to actively and aggressively censor speech and silence views they disagree with. And I gotta say, Elon Musk's buying Twitter and making the Twitter files public was an if, absolute game changer. If that is your view, though, about big tech and their ability to control speech, et cetera, then that should be even more of a concern when it comes to AI. Yes. They are the leaders in AI right now. They're the ones that have accrued billions of market, billions of dollars in market cap because of the notion that they are in the lead on mm -hmm. AI. Yeah. So is that a much bigger concern? And, and how does it factor in also? Because there's a thinking that if you, if you constrain the development of AI in this country, that you're going to actually allow other countries, particularly China, right. to take the lead in this technology. Uh, look, I think you make a very good point, and, and I am quite nervous about constraining the development of AI. And are there very real dangers coming from AI across the board? Yes. I, I chaired the very first congressional hearing ever on artificial intelligence. The problem is, and, and, and is there a need for congressional action on some point? Almost surely there is. 
But the problem is most people in Congress don't understand this at all. Look, we, we don't do intelligence very well, much less artificial intelligence. Um, and, you know, the Senate, I think the median age is about 142. <laughs> Um, you know, one of my colleagues on judiciary referred to the internet as a system of tubes. You ought to be, we, we should be careful asking folks who don't really understand it to regulate it. I think Congress needs to get smarter. I think we need to have hearings. I think we need to consider testimony. But I think we should proceed slowly so that we don't go in and break things. The last thing I want is for China to get way, way ahead of us on AI because government regulators have gotten in the way. So. It is reasonable to be worried about where AI is taking us, but I don't think Congress is going to fix the problem overnight. Senator Cruz, I want to thank you for coming in today. Always a pleasure. Good to see you. Still to come, the fake image that duped Twitter and the markets. How the blue check mark, AI technology, and going viral made a perfect storm of disinformation. CNBC's Steve Kovac joins us. This is almost as much a Twitter story as it is a danger of AI story. More Squawk Pod is right after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We're live at the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee along with Becky Quick. Joe and Andrew are off today. Who needs them, right? Now to the fake image that rattled the markets yesterday. The image posted yesterday morning showed black smoke billowing next to a building that appeared to be the Pentagon. It was shared widely on Twitter, including by a Russian state news agency. For a few minutes just after 10 a.m., the fake image sparked market jitters before officials said no such incident had occurred. Misinformation experts told the AP that the image was likely created using generative AI programs, citing inconsistencies in the building, the fence, and the way the ground grass and the concrete fade into each other. If you look very closely, also it was cited that the fence and the barricades actually melded into one another. And so that was a clear tip off that this was a fake image. The market reaction was very brief, was fairly minor. I mean, it was, you know, 0.3% change in the S&P 500. But if this were a better, if this were a better fake image and it was spread a little bit more widely, you can imagine the kind of damage that could be done to the markets by something like this. Look, I, I, I've been, I spent this weekend taking a lot of time looking at Twitter, which I think is a cesspool at this point, mm-hmm. because it's impossible to tell what's real and what's not. There were some fake accounts spoofing me. Yeah, me too. I kind of pointed <laughs> out, like, what, what is this? What's mm-hmm. going on? It took me 10 or 15 seconds of looking at it. Somebody else on Twitter pointed it out to me. It took me yeah. 10 or 15 seconds to realize it wasn't me. This is part of the problem with what they did with getting rid of the blue... Uh, the, Letting, the get, legacy blue the checks legacy blue and the paid for blue check. Everybody to have mm-hmm. a blue check mark if they want it. It, it. Twitter has basically said it's up to all of us to police this, not them, which is they've washed their hands of this and basically said, we're not going to help you unless you pay big bucks to try and do this. And I think this is going to lead to some significant problems with situations just like this, because that was my, my concern yeah. that I was pointing out over the weekend. What happens if there's a false tweet that moves market information based on some of right. these ridiculous things? Market information changes election outcomes, libel somebody. Right. I mean, the list goes on and on in terms of what you can impact with a very good fake 
whether it be a video or an image. I mean, there and have been posted on social media, Twitter or elsewhere, and it picks up and it goes off. But right. I, I do think that these social media companies are going to have to take more responsibility for stuff that is fake getting pushed around on the network, on their on their networks. If that was on, if it was on CNBC, if it was on, if it was in a newspaper, there would would be liability. Why not here? Yeah, and at one point in time, misinformation and, and content moderation, that was a, a big focus, a big area of spend for these companies. Yeah. And now all they say is, we're doing AI, and they've got billions of dollars in market cap added. And it's interesting that these are two push and pull effects, right? AI, which is fueling this misinformation, but also the need to spend to content that misinformation, so to police the misinformation. So it's, we'll see how that shakes out. Yeah, it's not a good scenario. Steve Kovac is here to help sort this out. Um, the, I mean, there's so many ways to go here yeah. because part of it on Twitter was it was retweeted by blue check accounts. That's exactly it. This is uh -huh. almost as much a Twitter story as it is yeah. a danger of AI story because the reason why this was able to propagate so quickly and hurt the markets yesterday was because the way Musk has changed Twitter. So you paid, what is it, eight bucks a month to get that blue tick mark. You get prime real estate in the app when people open it up. Therefore, you can just anybody with eight bucks a month can do this. So yes, Musk might be right that this helps weed out fake people, but it also gives everyone that air of authority, even if they don't necessarily deserve it. That's how this was able to propagate. By the way, we have an election next year. I don't know if Twitter is ready for this. Yeah, no, I, 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 I even before this, we were talking earlier this morning. I was looking at stuff this weekend, fake accounts yeah. that are mimicking my account. That fooled me when it's somebody on Twitter pointed it out to me. It took right. me a few seconds to, to figure out that that was not me. Was it verified? No, it's not verified, but I'm not verified. But and that, the response exactly. is, I should verify myself. Well, right. what's, what's the point? They can verify, they can verify themselves. themselves. This is why I deleted <laughs> my Twitter account, Becky, because I, it's become, it used to be a cesspool, now it's a cesspool plus yeah, whatever we're seeing yesterday. Right. Uh, that's, uh, so it's, uh, how do you do this verification? Who's responsible for it if somebody fakes this and goes on with it? They it's, are it's so not ready for what's coming next right. year, especially with these I was AI worried about images. this weekend, like just what you could potentially do with that, yeah. which, which you could go and try and move on the market. So the, the SEC is going to have to up its game and see who's doing what. Exactly. You know, there's just... One it's of the accounts that retweeted this image was a fake Bloomberg account. That's with the one the, I saw. With, with the blue, blue check. check. Exactly. And, right. For, and so, for eight bucks, you too can exactly. defraud anybody you want. And send the markets lower, whatever you want to do. It, and, I, and there's no checks on it. You mentioned the election, but I mean, we saw the slight dip in the markets and the S&P 500 was down 0.3%. Right. That's kind of small, but you know, you can impersonate an FDA commissioner about a drug that's in line for approval. You've seen these biotech stocks move in, in integers and yeah. you know, double digit percentages. Imagine the power that you could have if you impersonated the right person and spread misinformation about, so, I mean, you can it's have a much deeper- the fake Pfizer account. The, the, oh yeah, exactly, the, that I mean, happened a couple months Pfizer ago. account that yeah. said what, that they were going to be offering discounts right. for one of their drugs or not. I, I forget what it was, but it moved Pfizer shares. Yeah, and, and part of the other thing is we just have to kind of inoculate ourselves to treat what we read on social media like we read a supermarket tabloid, right? right. And even journalists are, are still missing it. Just take an extra beat just because it has that blue tick now doesn't mean anything anymore. It just means someone paid $8 a month to make sure that tweet got in front of you. But what's scarier is, is that, you know, all these companies are working so hard to make AI and generative AI so good. Yes. And the farther down we go that road, the more convincing every single fake tweet, fake video gets.
right. and the more power the people have who are using this to, exactly. to convey misinformation. And, and he's in Europe right now just to kind of talk about the regulation. They have an AI law that's being worked through right now. This was being discussed last week when I was down at Capitol Hill. It's like, how do we combat this? It's happening so quickly. They have their hands full. They're not equipped to handle it. One of the ideas is let's have some kind of marker on these images to prove that they're AI, but you can just edit that out. That's not right. a perfect If you're solution. a terrorist or a, or a state-sponsored organization, yeah. this, this is not going to be, this is going to be is, a minor barrier. This is great. Yes. Yeah. And, and again, on Twitter, Elon Musk's thesis is what we saw in the 2016 election was people were able to create, you know, thousands of accounts that pumped a certain conspiracy theory. This will stop it sure and he's right on that and he's count. right on he's that right on sure that but he, what he doesn't account for is that air of authority a blue that check marks gets right. and Look, you I, just I get, get free to, to do this like be more egalitarian about all of it but there are serious problems that yeah. are erupting as a we are we are just level. not ready becky and it's gonna this is one incident that's gonna of many to come steve thank you thanks and that's squawk pod for today thanks for listening Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll meet you right back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.